Listeners, welcome to part two of a very special little project that we are doing here on The Goods, a film podcast. Yes, indeed. We've reconvened to talk through the last quarter of our list, our top 25 favorite movies. Yeah, and you can check out our numbers 100 through 26 on last week's episode. That was a whole lot of fun. I'm looking forward to what we're going to be talking about today, Brian. Some overlap, some not overlap. Should be good. So, Dan, how does this grouping and our approach to it differ from last week's? So, I think what we're going to do is, rather than five at a time, we'll just alternate back and forth. We'll do 25, 25, 24, 24, etc. And that'll give us maybe just a hair more time to react to what the other film the the other host has selected. We'll have a little bit of discussion. We do still have to get through 50 movies, maybe less once you subtract the overlap, but still quite a few. Any thoughts from your end, Brian? No, that sounds pretty good. Cool. Yeah, I, I think I have a good batch, and I'm sure that you have a good batch. So do you just want to dive right into it or do you have any kind of preliminary or amending thoughts for last week not too much i'll just say thanksgiving's coming up so what are you thankful for dan i'm thankful for many things i'm thankful for cinema for movies i'm thankful for you brian i'm thankful for our podcast and our our time to convene each week to discuss movies and just i've had a lot of big things happen to me in the past year so and i'm thankful for all of them so yeah What about you, Brian? Awesome. Yeah, I guess I could list all those things too. Cool. Grateful to be here for yet another week. Let's do it. Cool. All right. So my 25th favorite movie is The Third Man from 1949. So we cut off last week at 26 and before number 25, which means that I actually split up two films that I usually think of in conjunction which is to say black and white British masterpieces from the 1940s that deal with guilt, I guess, in some sort of profound way. So unlike Brief Encounter, which I had at number 26, which came out during the war, The Third Man, my number 25, came out shortly after the war and kind of deals head on with post-war angst and a sense of sort of displacement and ennui. It follows an American named Holly Martin's who's played by Joseph Cotton. And, and he goes to Vienna, actually, to meet his friend, Harry Lime. And this movie is just a, a masterpiece of expressionistic cinematography. It's got a really gripping story as, as he kind of digs into this conspiracy around his friend. And it has uh, a terrific theme that's going to be a recurring uh, motif across many of my selections today, is that I love the music. And uh, this theme, the the third man theme, is played on a zither and is very distinctive. This movie also has probably my single favorite character reveal shot. Honestly, that shot is probably more famous than the rest of the movie at this point. So you probably know what and who it is. But if you don't, I won't spoil it for you. Really just a, a riveting, morally gray adventure. And like if people ever ask me, hey, I want to get into classic movies 
I want to get into black and white movies. This and another one a little higher on my list are my go-to picks. You won't be disappointed. Just just go watch it. So that's The Third Man, 1949 for me. Interesting. I need to check that one out. I've never seen it. In terms of post-war ennui, have you ever seen The Best Years of Our Lives? No. Is that one good? Yeah. That's one we watched for a film class. And it's noteworthy because one of the main characters is this guy who came back from the war and he got his hands blown off. So he has two hooks for hands. And this guy was actually a veteran who had that happen to him. And they cast him in the movie. Oh, wow. And like one of the scenes, he I think he plays piano with the hooks. He does He does something that you wouldn't think you could do. But he won two Oscars for the same role, which is the only time in Academy history that that's happened for an acting role. Uh, but he got, I think it was Best Actor and like a special achievement award. Interesting. That's pretty awesome. I got to check that one out. But my number 25 is Groundhog Day. We've discussed it briefly here in our mega list before, but it's a great time loop film, one that really helped establish the concept and really goes the extra mile in terms of hitting all the beats you might think of. You know, you get the dark, depressed stage, you get the hedonistic stage, you get various forms of the self-perfection stage and ends that Bill Murray is trying to achieve. Overall, a tight creative script. Awesome. Well, that one was previously on my list, and I do agree that it's a masterpiece. My number 24 was previously on your list, and that is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind from 2004. Check out our Goods episode on it. I think it was number 66. This is a film by Michel Gondry and Charlie Kaufman. It's both a high concept love story and like this philosophical exploration of the nature of identity and memory and the way that we're attracted to other people. I'm slightly more medium than you are, Brian, on the, the wacky stuff that happens with the lacuna technicians outside of the memory scape. I also think the tone is a little bit too cynical on the possibility of long lasting love. But the way that it captures the memories of Joel, who's played by Jim Carrey in this like against type, but really elastic and physical performance, the way we see his memories being wiped out, it's just masterful, heartbreaking, really tremendous filmmaking. I also think this is my favorite Kate Winslet performance. She plays Kit Clementine, the co-lead. So just a masterful film. I love it. Awesome. Well, my number 24 is Labyrinth by Jim Henson. And you got to see this one, Dan. I, I really do. Don't know that it's going to hit you the same way because I've been watching it since I was like five. But it's just a really magical film. It's sort of The Wizard of Oz remade. It's a girl who's not happy with her life, goes to this fantasy world where she's got to find her way to the end of a quest. She makes three male companions along the way, and then at the end she wakes up. And was it really all a dream or not? So perhaps well-trod story ground, but there are just so many cool puppets and like a whole world built from scratch. And... David Bowie defying gravity as the Goblin King. Man. Yeah, I definitely got to see that. 
We had to make that happen soon. At number 23, I have the highest ranked movie that I have only seen once in my life on this list. And that is Cloud Atlas from 2012. That means because, you know, I put it so high despite only seeing it once. That means that it's potentially subject to drop a little bit or perhaps climb even higher as I rewatch it. But this one like absolutely blew my mind when I watched it during my Hank's binge when I had COVID back in May. Uh, It has six timelines that show wildly different scopes and tones and story styles, but it all kind of merges into this. It's almost like a symphony on the theme of the power of radical love and radical kindness and radical dignity. Um, There's just a slight sheen of campiness on it. Just huge production values, all time. Great score has this great use of light motifs in that score. And then the really cool thing about it is the cast recurs across the six timelines in different roles in like wildly different characters across the roles. Uh, It's got Tom Hanks and Halle Berry and a whole bunch of other greats on it. Just this huge feast of cinema that, again, it it just blew me away. It's three hours long. I'm definitely going to be watching it again in the next year or so to, to see if it really deserves this high spot. But that's where I am with it right now. Number 23. Wow. Well, when you do, I might have to watch it because this is another one that I haven't seen yet. At number 23, I have Forrest Gump. And this is another one. It's got Tom Hanks. It's about three hours long. It's sort of a biopic of all of America in the second half of the 20th century. Forrest Gump is like this cipher. He just kind of goes with the breeze and he winds up drifting through a bunch of pivotal historical events of the time period and influencing them in ways that he doesn't fully comprehend. And this isn't everybody's cup of tea. I've heard a lot of critics come down hard on it for being schmaltzy. It does kind of enforce like a conservative mindset, Uh, but it's got some cool visual effects, lots of like recreating and working modern elements into vintage footage of all the different periods that are covered, which is kind of neat. And those are my Forrest Gump thoughts. Yeah, I'm very mixed on Forrest Gump. I I know it's a favorite of yours. We talked a little bit about it on our Thanksgiving. It's definitely an achievement for sure. And I just think it's too long and like, I don't know, I I don't get fully engaged in it. And I'm a little bit there on the politics of it, too. I feel like it's really cynical on anything counterculture. But I mean, I think everything that that you said about about what makes it work, I, I can't really deny all of that. I gave it a five good on the is a good scale when I watched it. But yeah, I, I I know this is one we disagree on. And yeah, I feel like maybe I'm not doing enough to sell why I like it. I think the key moment in this film is the scene when he decides to run across America and he just keeps going and everybody is like trying to read some deeper meaning into it. And he gets like this whole cult of followers <laughs> and really just the whole spirit behind it is he felt like running yeah just the dude doing a thing and then at the end he he stops he comes to a halt and they say he's gonna say something and he says i'm pretty tired i think i'll go home and he walks off 
<laughs> after running for like two and a half years. That's pretty funny. And there's still some Bubba Gump shrimp restaurants hey. that you can go and eat at at Tourist Traps. All right. So at number 22, I have Spider-Man 2 from 2004. If you listened last week, you'll know I had the original Spider-Man at number 67. The sequel tops it for me. I love so much about how it dives deeper into Peter Parker's psyche as he faces this existential crisis on like his self-sacrifice for the good of the world. It's amazing because it's a four quadrant crowd pleaser, mega blockbuster type movie, but it also manages to feel so handcrafted, almost intimate by Sam Raimi. There's that one scene, it's the clock tower and train fight scene, and then the little denouement that follows that when Peter Parker's almost died. I talked about it in our top five fight scenes episode when Will joined us. That's one of my favorite movie scenes. It's just a blend, perfectly constructed action and kind of like a payoff on all the spiritual stuff that's sort of under the hood on why we love superheroes and superhero movies. My only regret with this one is that I love Alfred Molina as Doc Ock. He's just not an all-time great the way that Willem Dafoe is as Green Goblin in Spider-Man 1. He's still good. He's not quite there. But, man, this is one of my favorite popcorn movies uh, ever. So, Spider-Man 2. I really like Spider-Man 2 as well. I mentioned in the last episode that I dropped it from some point in between the 2009 and 2013 lists that I made. It might merit a spot. I need to watch it again. But definitely back in the day, I was a fan. At number 22, I have Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Now, this one was a little higher on my 2013 list, but I still enjoy it quite a bit. It's from Tim Burton, and as such, and necessarily stars Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter in the title role and as Mrs. Lovett. This is an adaptation of a Broadway musical with music by Stephen Sondheim. And it's about a Victorian madman turning people into meat pies and selling them. <laughs> it's one of my favorite movies to watch at Thanksgiving, huh. by coincidence. That was when I was introduced to it by my college roommate. And then, like, each year at college, before I would take the train home each thanksgiving break i would put it on and it works better than you might think because in the story he has been exiled he's been like in prison in australia at the ends of the earth for 15 years and then he finally comes back to reunite with his family and then he has to right some wrongs and seek some vengeance and eat some food like as you do at thanksgiving cool i've seen this one once but not since i kind of read your tribute on it and I definitely want to revisit it for sure. Uh, the, our high school did it. I think, I don't know if you had graduated, Brian. I'm thinking maybe you hadn't graduated. It was after I graduated. Do you remember that when TJ did it? No, I feel like I would have. Okay, so it must have been after you graduated and my brothers were there. Um, and I think they were might have been in the, the pit with playing instruments. But yeah, TJ did it shortly after we left too. Oh, dang. Sorry, I missed it. Yeah. All right. So now we are on to my number 21. So this is Moonrise Kingdom from 2009. 
this definitely would have placed on my top 100, but I needed to revisit it per my rule that I have seen every movie on my top 100 since we started the podcast. So I actually just watched this again about a week ago and it was even better than I remembered. I don't know, man. This one is really special. It's my favorite Wes Anderson film. And I, I also think it's the only Wes Anderson that's cracked my top 100, although I'm missing a few of his. It has that distinct, symmetrical, bespoke aesthetic that is Anderson's calling card. But what I really love about it is just how it, how it blends all of that beautiful production and, and a terrific score with this lovely little story about two kids who fall in love that just gets more and more layers that go along it's really not cynical. Like it's somehow a deadpan comedy without being too cynical, which is a kind of unique tone. And there are like a hundred points. It could have mocked its leads and their romance, but instead it convinces us, Brian, it convinces us audience that love is worth the hassle and it makes the world a better place. That score. It also is subtitled the heroic weather conditions of the universe, which I think is, is awesome. Just got this spark to it. Lovely colors. Anderson's got an artist's eye. Everything about it looks great. I like this one a lot, Brian, obviously. That's Moonrise Kingdom from 2009 at number 21. Yeah, I love this one too. I probably, within a year, will re-update this list that I'm making here. But I went to see this one at like an art house theater right when it came out because it didn't have a very wide release, at least at the beginning. And I found it to be one of the best movies about Boy Scouts. Yeah, definitely. Khaki Scouts. Yeah, it takes place at, at partially at the annual Hullabaloo, which is a, a reference to the Boy Scout Jamboree that happens each year. Right. But uh, the Scoutmaster is Edward Norton from Fight Club, and his dedication to being the Scoutmaster is great and really touching. Because, yeah, it's all about these weather conditions. There's this big storm coming, and one of the scouts runs off with this girl that he's got the relationship with. And so they set up, like, this little utopia on the beach where it's just going to be them living in isolation. Uh, but then, you know, the scouts go out looking for them, and then this big storm comes in, and so everybody's threatened by that. But, like, Harvey Keitel plays, like, the big scout boss... The, like, district rep. But he gets washed away in the flood. And then Edward Norton has to step up and save everybody. Really good one. And yeah, it's got a idiosyncratic score. It's like this old operetta about Noah's flood. Right. A lot of biblical stuff in there, too. You got some Adam and Eve stuff going on with the two kids when they make their little oasis. And then, obviously, a flood that washes away all the sin of the world. Yeah. All right. At 21, I have the Lego movie. This is my Lord and Miller entry. And I think it ranks so high because I was not expecting this at all. My friend described it by saying, Oh, I'm going to watch the Lego movie? Wow, I just watched the Lego movie. <laughs> like, you go into it thinking, how good could a movie called... Just the Lego movie. How commercial and flat and vapid does that sound? And then it turns out to be, like, a deeply thoughtful treatment on the deepest themes you could imagine. It's like, is it possible to be an individual 
is there worth to living in a society and you know the nature of play just so many big ideas in this and it's all animated amazingly because you could like hit pause at any point and every scene in the movie is essentially like a shoebox diorama stop motion style lego setups it's all cgi but it it doesn't really look that way it really looks like you could almost make these things the way that it like makes you feel like it's stop motion when everything moves like it's actually lego toys even though it's all cgi it's a triumph of animation absolutely i i like this one it's it doesn't quite crack my top 100 i can't remember if i Gave this one a seven or a six when I rewatched it, but I, I definitely like this one a lot for sure. Good pick. So my number 20 is My Neighbor Totoro from 1988. So when we introduce our lists, I kind of talked about how I used a ranking engine with like all these matchups that kind of generated an algorithm that helped me order my 100 movies. And My Neighbor Totoro cracking the top 20 was probably the biggest surprise of that exercise. I guess I actually love it more than I maybe had previously acknowledged. Um, it's a terrific film. It's got this gentle and sweet story about a pair of sisters who moved to this new house um, to be near their sick mother in a hospital. And at their new house, th they encounter this fantasy world populated by these fuzzy creatures that are called Totoros. I'm sure you recognize them. They're the Studio Ghibli symbol. There's this one giant one that says Totoro. Easily my favorite Ghibli and Miyazaki movie, at least of the ones that I've seen. Just transcendentally gorgeous animation. Love the world building, how it's not too on the nose with the fantasy stuff and like whether it's real or whether it's all in their heads. I've actually only heard this one with the English dub because I always watch it with my kids when I watch it. And, you know, they can't read, obviously, but I'm definitely going to watch it with the original Japanese voice track at some point. I love this one. I watched My Neighbor Totoro a long time ago. I think we watched it in class in third grade or something, but definitely due to revisit. At number 20, I have Amadeus. We talked about it a little last time. And actually, after we recorded the episode, we found that in the lead-up, we had both watched this one, like, within the past week. So it's fresh in our minds. I almost pitched making this installment like a, a backdoor pilot. Like, we, we run down the list, and then suddenly it's the Amadeus episode. But uh, I like this one a lot. There's a lot of opera in this, and I feel like the one shortcoming is it doesn't quite make me love opera, and it seems like it kind of wants to. Like, the movie wants to impart on you the brilliance of opera. But the rivalry at the story's core is so compelling. The court composer Salieri, who's well-positioned, and, like, he, he should be happy. He's succeeding, but he has this all-consuming jealousy of Mozart because Mozart is a better composer. Even though, like, society at large doesn't seem to totally recognize Mozart's talent in his time. At least that's how it's shown. Like, I don't know. I want to shake Salieri. I want to talk more about this movie at some point, but it's one that it grows on me each time I watch it. Yeah, it's amazing. 
I just wrote a review of it for my website, thegoodsreviews.com. Um, I'm with you on everything. F. Murray Ma- Abraham as Salieri, it's a special performance because he's both this old man on the brink of insanity, like recalling how he claims to have murdered Mozart. And then also, he you're right, he's this guy in the moment too. Just... Lots of like really interesting things going on. It's like high drama. It's operatic in its own way. Um, yeah, I, I'm with you. This one is is absolutely amazing. I think I had it at 27 or something. Definitely. And both Salieri and Mozart were nominated for Best Actor, which rarely happens. Rarely are two roles in the same movie considered the lead. But... Salieri came out on top that time. He got the Best Actor Award. (laughs) Revenge, yeah. That's funny. I mentioned last week that on the Discord, we've talked a little bit about how it is in some ways like easier to group movies into tiers rather than generate like a strict 100 to 1 ranking. So like if I had grouped movies into tiers, I'll say that from this point, like number 19 down through maybe number four are all kind of approximately the same tier. Um, they're all movies that I unconditionally adore and could pretty easily rearrange into a different order uh, without too much objection on my part. But this is the ranking I landed on and I reviewed it once more and I feel pretty good about it. At number 19, I have Finding Nemo from 2003, which is one of Pixar's masterpieces um, just this this massive, colorful adventure, an odyssey of sorts, makes unprecedented and, in my opinion, still unmatched use of CGI to create a sense of scope and vastness. And it, it's just this emotional and kind of scary story about a dad and a son getting separated. It really heightens and dramatizes the real-life parenting experience of, like, how do you deal with a kid in this scary world and like how do you let them be free that resonates with me you know now that i'm a dad it's also like really quirky and funny in a way that i find charming it's got darkness to it oh just it's got everything i love finding Nemo. nice i've used this one for a long time on the first day of film classes that i teach as an example of Well, it's got that prologue where you've got things that the characters have lost and that shape the way that they act. But just in this first act, you know, you learn their their personalities. There's foreshadowing of the conflict to come. There's mentions of the dangers that the wide ocean holds that, oh, I wonder if we'll see that. I wonder if we'll see that. And yeah, just overall, the whole movie, great visuals. It's a little episodic, but you see all kinds of things. You know, jellyfish and sharks and whales, and it's got that whole sense of scale. And the way that the story passes from, like, creature to creature, and to the point that by the end they, like, all know that this quest for the sun is going on. I was really engaged when I saw this for the first time in theaters. Yeah, it's a good one. At number 19, Dan, I have Titanic. Oh, there it is. One of the bigger shakeups on this list 
it's jumped quite a bit, and that is buoyed perhaps by Dan's enthusiasm for the movie. I do really like this one. I don't know if it quite gets an eight if I'm trying to be objective, but it is engaging all throughout. Uh, really powerhouse filmmaking. Just to think that they made, you know, various scale models of the ship, like a full-size half of one that they could park in a harbor, and then a, like a three-quarters of the back that they could tilt up into the air, and then they made digital ones so they could do all the stuff that those had to do. And, yeah, it was a labor of love by pretty much everybody involved, it seems. You can be blasé about some things, Rose, but not about Titanic. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. I mean, obviously, I reacted very strongly to this one, too. I think I had it at 36, and yeah, cinema at its biggest scale, for sure. And it's so refreshing to watch nowadays where everything is digital. Like you said, all the things they had to do to make it, it really shows when, when you watch it. So at number 18, I have Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981, the first Indiana Jones movie. I don't know if Indiana Jones needs an introduction. I think everybody who loves movies loves Indiana Jones or at least knows Indiana Jones. And I suspect we might be getting another proper introduction to him at some point before uh, we're done today. But Brian, this is perfect pulpy filmmaking. It's just got set piece after set piece. Love the history hunting adventure that's at the core. When I revisited this one earlier this year, I, I just couldn't believe how well it held up and how well it's made. It's like every single shot and cut is just textbook perfect. It's like what you would teach in film class. Its construction is so good. It's got tons of humor in it. I love the characters. I think I was a little disappointed they didn't do with Marion. She she had more strength in the movie in my memory than I think she actually does in the film. But it's also got that supernatural horror stuff sprinkled in, particularly the ending. Uh, just peak adventure filmmaking. Uh, I love Raiders. Yeah, it's really cool. Lots of good stuff. You'll hear about it again before we're done. I like this one. At number 18, I have The Court Jester, starring Danny Kaye. Also, Angela Lansbury and Glynis Johns who was uh, the mom from Mary Poppins. This one, it's a little hard to explain. I'm going to assign it as an episode in the not-too-distant future. So I won't tell the whole story, but it's, it's a medieval court intrigue story. And there's all kinds of misunderstandings. People under aliases and people who are dealing with dramatic irony. At different times, different characters are aware of different information. And, you know, they're forming their presumptions and pursuing their own goals based on what they think they know. And nobody's really got the full picture except the audience. And it's, it's really well written. It's got some funny musical numbers. And it's due for uh, a look here on The Goods, I think. All right. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, but I definitely would be up for watching it. So hopefully we'll get that on our roster at some point. If not, I'll probably play it myself at some point because I, I have been itching to see it. At number 17, I have another 
major blockbuster along the lines of Raiders of the Lost Ark, my last pick. This one, I would say, tops even that one. And that is Star Wars. Ever heard of it, Brian? From 1977? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so I used to have this one a tier below Empire Strikes Back. I've you turned on that a little bit. Not only does this have like one of the all-time film scores by John Williams, but I think it uses that score better than any other movie I've ever seen. It actually feels like a true life opera in some ways, just the way that the music guides the narrative arc. It's like individual shots and cuts match up to cues in the song. I don't think this one gets mentioned enough in like all time great editing because the way that that score and that editing line up is just bravura level. The script and the acting, I think, are the deficiencies in the film. And I don't think many people, even those who love it like I do, really deny that. But everything else, just visually the way that it conveys the good versus evil and the light versus dark stuff, oppression versus the rebellion. It's just all great archetypal elemental stuff. I also love this version of Darth Vader more than any of the other Darth Vaders we get, even when he's like a dad. And I know that's a little more emotional stuff, but here he's like this wild card chaos agent of evil. And then the the force as this deeply mysterious and unknowable thing. I feel like the magic of that got diminished. And so rewatching this helps me remember like why that was such an enticing space magic theme. I don't know. Star Wars is actually, I think, deserves its reputation. And that obviously is a high praise because it's it's one of the movies that everybody knows. But I really think it's that great, especially William's score and how it's used. Yeah, I have seen, you know, documentaries about the making of. And if you ever see a clip of Star Wars with the music not added in yet, it's like, how did this ever even work i mean and the answer is it wouldn't have but that just elevates it so much and also sound effects as well like that's a huge part of it too all the the way that the ships sound and the lightsabers and the blasters and the creatures like the way chewbacca sounds it's all lush it's rich and it seems real and it really builds the world at number 17, I have Inglorious Bastards by Quentin Tarantino. I like this one because it's, you know, a counterfactual history of World War II, but it's also very much about movie history. Like, so many of the characters are knowledgeable about films of the period, and that jives with Quentin Tarantino's whole thing. You know, he's a guy who loves movies and movie history. But... If you go and you look, the earliest film festivals all came out of like the fascist regimes of the 30s, like Venice and Berlin. I guess that was it. Venice and Berlin are like the first two film festivals, like 33 and 36 or something. But, uh, you know, it talks Lenny Riefenstahl. It talks some developments in American film. Like everybody in all the countries, venerates Charlie Chaplin. I, I don't know. It's interesting. It's violent. It's stylistic. It's a little long, but I definitely enjoy it. It's one I go back to time and again. Yeah, I've seen this one before, and I need to 
rewatch it. Um, I, I remember liking it. Really incredible performances and a handful of scenes that really stuck with me on this one. Have you seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I've not seen that one yet. That tells the story of the Manson murders, right? Yeah. And what you were saying about how this kind of tells the story of movies and I guess Tarantino's love of movies and, and kind of the centrality of that to his life perspective. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is even more of that. I think you're probably right. I got to check that one out. The other thing I'll say about Inglorious Bastards is it's split into like five acts, which is like each one is like 20 to 30 minutes long, but each one is almost its own little movie that masterfully builds suspense from the beginning to some payoff at the end. Yeah. At number 16, my favorite blockbuster of the 21st century to date, my favorite comic book movie ever. That is The Dark Knight from 2008. You know, it's a Batman story, but it's also this this crime story with a massive scope. And it uses all the heightened genre superhero element stuff to bring everything to just grand scale, operatic scale, to use that word again. I really love its focus on duality and how all of its characters lives and to some extent our lives, you know, the audience's lives are driven by this struggle between various competing concepts you know you have order and chaos of course with the joker in there freedom versus institutions and all sorts of stuff there and obviously then you have two-face at the core of it who his arc kind of defines the whole movie and really brings that theme of duality to the surface and then of course there's heath ledger as the joker an all-time electric appearance on screen and the potency of that has been increased, I think, by his death. It's kind of dark to say, but it's almost like this performance of the Joker, like sucked the soul out of Ledger and plastered it on film for us. I know that's like messed up thing to say. He was addicted to painkillers and all that. But I don't know, something about the fact that he died bringing this to us just adds to the sense that the Dark Knight kind of transcends the usual limitations of comic book movies. And I think that's true. I think this one, it's not exactly like the the tightest or the most coherent. It, it's got a lot of stuff that just kind of happens. And, you know, it's like a, a whole landscape of events and ideas and quotes. But it's just so good. And, and it really sweeps you away. So Dark Knight, number 16. Cool. I don't remember this one quite as fondly, but it was really like era defining. I remember... It was something that, like, pole vaulted the superhero movie form. Absolutely. And, like, before this, unquestionably, Spider-Man 2 was the best one. And then everybody was talking about this one next. So there was a span of, like, four years. Then this was the one on everybody's tongue. And it stuck around that way for, like, a while. I mean, the MCU followed in its heels pretty quickly. But... Still, for like the first, probably until Avengers, like 2009 to 2012, everything was being held up to the example of The Dark Knight. Yeah, there, there's this AV Club feature by actually by Tom Brehan, who I frequently reference because he does a column where he reviews all of the number one Billboard hits. So he writes more about music than movies, but he did have a movie column where he wrote about the most important superhero movie of every year. And 2008 
had both the Dark Knight and I think Iron Man. So it's like the thing that kicked off the MCU, which not only reshaped superhero cinema, but literally all of movie making and the finances of movie making for the next 30 years or 20. I guess what at this point it's only 15 years, but still going on. And how do you determine which one was more influential? I think he landed on the Dark Knight just because it was when we really started to take superhero movies seriously, like more than ever before, you know, and it really made it because that one made, I think, a billion dollars. I think it's still in like the top 15 highest grossing movies of all time. Wow. And it, I think it got a did it get snubbed for Best Picture? I can't remember, but it definitely didn't win Best Picture. No, I know it didn't win it, but I don't even remember if it was nominated. But um, anyways, yeah, it's up there for me, obviously. So that was number 16. Nice. At number 16, I have Toy Story 2, which is my favorite Pixar film. I had somebody ask me in the past year, you majored in American history, which I kind of did. It was American studies, technically, but history was a big component of that. So you majored in that. So what's your favorite period of American history? And I didn't have an answer right off the bat, but I think it's the Cold War. I like that kind of gloomy, introspective, we are on the brink of wiping ourselves out idea. And so I like media that draws on that. Just the idea that how do you follow up Toy Story 1? Well, you do it with a movie where... You know, you kind of swap the roles. In the first one, it was uh, Woody has to go out and save Buzz and bring him back. Well, now in this one, it's Woody who has to get rescued. Uh, But he learns that he was part of this popular cowboy puppet TV show in the 1950s. That's that was Woody's origin. And that was popular because obviously Westerns overall were huge in that period. Until, they say, Sputnik went up, and now children only wanted to play with space toys. So it takes that conflict from the first movie, where Woody was replaced and usurped by Buzz Lightyear, and, like, expands it to the world at large, and really places them in this bigger picture. And, I don't know, I've just always really liked that. It has its shortcomings, you know, it's not as monumental perhaps as the first toy story or the third like the world is pretty much the same at the end as it was when it began but there's a lot here i like and it's a quantum leap in terms of computer graphic capabilities from the first one yeah i had this one at number 44 i i adore this one as well what's great is that it it really um takes what the first toy story did which is have this great story that like did way more emotionally and thematically with the premise than it needed to. And one upped that even more, like it goes even deeper into how this premise is kind of like a mirror to many of the things that make us human. And like, us kind of figuring that out just a really rich film and so entertaining, of course. So at number 15, I have a film from 2010 and that is the social network. This is a David Fincher film written by Aaron Sorkin. It is a tense drama. Sorkin's script is absolutely brilliant. Got lots of tension in it, but also lots of comedy in it. If you want to call this a biopic, then it's easily 
my favorite biopic. Maybe not easily. It's it's only a few slots ahead of Amadeus, I suppose. But it tells the it's a dramatized retelling of the founding of Facebook. But more than that, it's like a treatise on the dangers of commodifying our human interactions via technology. The score is this groundbreaking masterpiece by Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor. It makes everything feel more urgent and dangerous. The performances are are fantastic. I think my favorite is probably Jesse Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg. Um, but, you know, there's a few other ones in there. This was Andrew Garfield's big breakout. Uh, you got Justin Timberlake in there. Fincher does a great job of making everything feel kind of icy and dangerous. Not quite so much as Gone Girl, but nearly. I just love everything about this one. It's both really entertaining and it's really thoughtful. Yeah, that's the social network. Cool. Well, I have a biopic still upcoming. It's not that one, though. (laughs) At number 15, I have Merlin, the TV movie from 1998. And... This is not really an objective pick. I think this movie doesn't really hold up quite as well on rewatch, but it was really inspirational to me as a kid. And it kind of introduced me as part of a one-two punch to the fantasy genre in 1998, along with The Legend of Zelda, The Ocarina of Time that came out that year. It's just an intriguing captivating genre to a young boy it's like dragons and castles and all of that and sam neill plays merlin the guy dr grant from jurassic park who should be in more movies oh interesting yeah it's got a few other known names it's got uh, martin short as the gnome who teaches him to be a wizard it's got uh, james earl jones as a mountain Oh, uh, he is the keeper of the sword that gets the stone stuck in it. So it it basically draws a bunch of stuff kind of hodgepodge from various Arthur legends and is a telling of the Camelot story, but focused on Merlin. I recommend it, but you're probably not going to put it immediately atop your top 100 movies. Doesn't seem destined to be a a top 100 pick for me because it's probably one you got to get hit with at the right age, but I would definitely still check it out. So I had a 2010 film at number 15. At number 14, I have another 2010 film. That is How to Train Your Dragon by DreamWorks. It's possible that I'm slightly overrating this one a little bit. It was just like a magical movie for me, just this revelation. I saw it in theaters maybe four times, but man, I just adore this one. It's a sort of underdog story of this Viking who's this real scrawny guy and he dares to befriend this, this really dangerous dragon. It's got these magnificent flying scenes that really capture a sense of flight and space and soaring better than, I don't know. I think any other movie I've ever seen the scenes where hiccup the Viking and bonds with toothless, the dragon, they're just so lovely and heart swelling John Powell's score is one of my all-time favorites. It's one I can just put on and listen to from start to finish. And they brought in Roger Deakins, who, you know, is one of the great cinematographers, to consult on it. And this is right around the time that DreamWorks turned the corner from putting out films that were kind of not that well critically regarded to films that 
were really admired for being more adventurous in terms of their animation. Deacons, I think, really helped them figure out how to give this film a sense of space and texture that's just so vivid when you watch it. And I think it's really thoughtful, too. It's kind of about how humans need to take better care of nature and kind of thrive within nature rather than battling against it, which, you know, you can read into as much or as little as you want, because it's also just a really entertaining story on the surface. Um, A really special one to me. That's How to Train Your Dragon. Wow, that's interesting about Deacon's consulting. I would never have thought of that, that you could even really do that in an animated film, bring in a live-action cinematographer. But, I mean, it makes sense in a way. That's cool. My number 14 is my favorite biopic. It's Ed Wood by Tim Burton from 1994. And... It's the story of the guy who made Plan 9 from Outer Space, sometimes regarded as the worst movie ever made. And the protagonist, at least in the film, has this contagious optimism. He's just immediately confident that he can make a movie all on his own outside the studio system without really having any reason to be confident because he's not very talented. But he's able to motivate enough people to get these things put together and on the screen. And in a way, they live forever. It's also got Johnny Depp as Ed Wood. <laughs> it's a Tim Burton movie. So, you know, Johnny Depp, there you go. Yeah, I haven't seen this one, but uh, it's definitely on my to watch list. I've been surprised. I don't know. I kind of always had the assumption that uh, Tim Burton was just kind of a fun filmmaker, but in reading a lot of movie criticism books, he's pretty well regarded as like a kind of influencer on the way that images can really uh, have a strong impact on the way that, that we kind of react to movies. Like he, he would do all these big expressionistic things. And I'm kind of curious to, to watch this one and uh, certainly see some more Burton's cause I've only seen, I don't know, five or fewer, I think, probably. I'll have to check. Yeah, I think I'm going to assign Mars Attacks at some point. Oh, that was him too, wasn't it? Yeah. That's a very Burtony one. Okay, yeah. Probably the Burtoniest is Edward Scissorhands. Yes, I've seen that one, and that I think exemplifies that. Um, Batman 2 is pretty Tim Burtony. It's a little bit, but the fact that it's another franchise, I think, diminishes that a little bit, but just in terms of this expressionistic stuff that's going on there. All right. So at number 13, I have a movie that was previously on your list, Brian. In fact, in a franchise that was discussed just a couple minutes ago, that is the first Toy Story from 1995. We all know it was the first feature-length CGI film What really blows my mind is just how damn good it actually is, given that it was the first for all of that. The screenplay in particular, made by a movie company that had never made a feature-length film before, it's so good. It sparkles. It's just funny and kind of got a little bite to it at moments. Some of the characters are mean every now and then. And it's just got so much resonance with the scenario of the toys coming to life. And even that kind of logic-defying ending, I just find so rousing, so exciting, great payoff, great climax. I mean, this is just one of the 
great films, the great American achievements in cinema. You know, the the CGI, it's a little bit whatever. Uh, not a little bit whatever. It is very primitive and ugly in 2022. But the movie does its best to get around that in part by making the topic plasticky toys so you don't care that the animation is all plasticky. And the fact that the story is so good and it didn't rely on the visual novelty means it really holds up. So I love this one. Tom Hanks, Tim Allen, terrific voice performances, but there's a lot of good voice performances in there too. Uh, masterpiece. That's that's Toy Story. Yep, we love the Toy Stories. My number 13 is another Tim Burton. It's actually his directorial debut with Pee-wee's Big Adventure in 1985. This actually came before Pee-wee's Playhouse. It was like early in the stages of Pee-wee. But it's kind of the the mind melding between Tim Burton and Paul Rubens. And it's a very special, weird thing. It's this road movie where Pee-wee is traveling across the country to retrieve his stolen bicycle. And he just gets into all these zany antics that make me laugh every time. Even once I know what's coming. But he like, he does a dance to tequila the instrumental to charm a gang of angry bikers. He like has a nightmare about clown surgeons dissecting his bike. He visits the roadside attraction, the Cabazon dinosaurs, which are these giant technicolor dinosaur statues you can climb inside. And it's just this slice of kitsch, masterpiece it's it's inexplicable you gotta witness it and it has great music by danny elfman it's occurring to me how many of your top ranked ones i haven't seen i, I really need to because i haven't seen this one either I, I liked the peewee that you made me watch towards the beginning of our show's run with the christmas special i might make my kids watch that one this year but um i need to see this one too yeah it's memorable for sure i came to it after having seen a lot of Playhouse and okay. it blew my mind a little bit that he had a movie and not just that he had a movie, but it actually came first. Wow. Yeah. And number 12, I have my favorite Disney Renaissance movie. It was something that was, if I'm not mistaken on your list, Brian, and that is beauty and the beast from 1991 tale as old as time. As far as musical goes, it's just one of the best soundtracks, top to bottom. Everything, every track is great, I think. And the animation is just so epic. It's the peak of Disney's fairy tale storytelling. I uh, love the voice acting so much. All the characters are great. It just holds together so well. And, and I think what really stands out to me is this humanizing portrait of the beast and the kind of depth it gives these characters and the way that Gaston and Beast kind of clash in different ways and just the this terrific film. I mean, you know, I love Disney Renaissance and this is them doing their best version of it is for, for my money at least. If I had one movie wish, I would think about having it be Howard Ashman recovering from AIDS in the early 90s or at least getting to the point where now our medicine is a lot better than it used to be. 
so that he could bring more of his light to this world because he adds so much to it in terms of his, you know, he's the lyricist for the music. He uh, Mankin writes the tunes, but more than just the lyricist, I think he's listed as like a producer or something because he kind of has the creative vision of what the story could should be and just has all of the the songs build toward it. That opening theme of Bell, that's like this town introducing sprawling song. So perfect. Uh, yeah, Beauty and the Beast is is one of my favorite animated films and and my favorite in the Walt Disney Animation Studios canon. Nice. I do wish that Ashman had at least gotten to finish out Aladdin. I think it would have been a very different movie. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, then Mencken went on to work with Stephen Schwartz in movies like Hunchback of Notre Dame. And then Schwartz went off and did Prince of Egypt. And then he did Wicked on Broadway. So it's like minds work together, creative talents combine and then spin off. And we have great works of art to thank for that. Right. Number 12 for me is The Lost Skeleton of Cadavra from director Larry Blameyer in 2001. Now, this is an underappreciated movie. I heard about it from a blogger and had to go order the DVD from the website. But it's a parody of 1950s cheapo sci-fi movies. Kind of a la Ed Wood's stuff. But it was made in 2001. So it's like they did everything they could to match the style as though this really were a lost 50s film. And it kind of pokes fun at the eccentricities of this Z-grade 50s movie making where people will like point at animals in stock footage that's clearly a cutaway. And it's another one that it's like hard to explain. You kind of got to be there. But I find it very funny. It was skewered to a T. And Larry Blameyer should do more things. He tried recently, like, kickstarting his third skeleton movie and didn't get the money, and I don't know what he's doing now. He has made a few other movies, but I will always shout his praises when I am given a soapbox. I love finding those one creators that hit the spot, like, directly from your perspective. For sure. I would definitely give this one a watch. Number 11. I have Back to the Future from 1985. This is pretty much a perfect blockbuster. All the time travel stuff. It's filmed in a way that's like really intuitive. It's like easy to understand. I think a lot of us love time travel because this movie did such a good job of introducing it to us. But even more than just like the concept, the screenplay itself is so phenomenal. Um, it does all this setup and then has all these kind of moments of little bits of payoff and Easter eggs of things that connect to each other. Just very satisfying to watch. And Robert Zemeckis, the director, he gives it this grand sense of fun adventure. It's also like so specific in capturing 1985 and 1955. Now, remember, 1985 would have been the present. That it ends up being like a period piece in retrospect because Of course, Zemeckis wanted to make 85 and 55 feel distinct, which he does. But that means we get a really distinct flavor of the time it was made. And I like it when movies capture the time that they were made really well, too. I think 
the reason that it doesn't quite crack my top 10 is it's a little bit on the hollow side, at least in terms of like lacking really thematic depth and interesting things to say. But it's so good as entertainment that like it really doesn't bother me at all. It's still a favorite. It's so delightful and watchable. Um, the performances are excellent. And of course, especially Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox in the lead. And Brian, we briefly met, if you could even call it that, Christopher Lloyd. We got our picture taken with him at one of the cons last year. So that was pretty fun. Right. We got pictures with him, us at one side of a DeLorean and him at the opposite end sitting on a stool. We shared a room with him for about six seconds. So That's right. And we have photographic proof. Number 11 for me, I've got Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. Maybe this one could slide back down a few pegs, but when I first saw it, I had a few people point me to it. Like, the first time I saw that title pop up, I wasn't interested. It just sounded super vague and, like, overly silly. I didn't really glean anything from that title. But people were like, no, you got to sit down and watch this. It was made during the big writer's strike. Like, the, I think the biggest relatively recent one of those that really, like, shut down the industry for a little while. And it was creative people seeing what they could put together kind of outside of the big studios. You know, it's Joss Whedon and Nathan Fillion and Felicia Day and Neil Patrick Harris as the star putting together this 45-minute musical that... I really wish they had expanded and yet works perfectly at the length that it is. I don't know if the world will ever end up being re-explored, maybe in like a Dark Horse comic series or something. But uh, I like it. This little snapshot of the supervillain who is struggling in his personal life. And it's this whole society of superheroes and supervillains who are all kind of silly i mean the evil supervillain league is led by a horse <laughs> dark horse or evil horse what is it i yeah i think it's bad horse that's even better dark dark horse would have been better but uh, i like yeah i mean it's it's stuff like yeah one of his lieutenants is evil thomas jefferson so <laughs> i like this one this is a fun one I would say it's on the edge of qualifying as a movie, but I suppose it still counts because it was released in like YouTube chapters, but you can watch it as one almost feature length arc together, basically. Right. Yeah, it was in like three 15 minute pieces. All right. So, Brian, we're to the top 10. Oh, I'm so excited about all 10 of these movies. Big doings. At number 10, I had a movie that I... I let the algorithm tell me where to put it. And honestly, just because I didn't trust myself to put this movie in any spot. This is my favorite documentary. This is my favorite short film. Heavy metal rules. All that punk shit sucks. This is heavy metal parking lot from 1986. I don't know why I love it so much. I just do. It's like a slightly trashy blast of life and personality. So the story, you can go listen. We talked about it in our first April Fool's episode. If you want to hear me rhapsodize about it for like 75 minutes and talk about every single person who appears in it, it basically follows these kids, mostly like young adult kids, at uh, prepping for a concert 
what the story is these these two aspiring filmmakers just took a video camera to a parking lot before a heavy metal concert hence heavy metal parking lot and just walked around and filmed them drinking beer and smoking doobies i guess i don't think we see too much of that but they're definitely uh inebriated fellas and and lassies there and they are saying the wildest stuff just crazy outfits and cars and hair and man i I don't know what it is but this just makes me joyful for life this movie I, i think probably the filmmakers were trying to be more derogatory towards the the people captured than I actually feel towards it. I don't care. I love these people. And I think, uh, or at least I love the the little snippets of them that we get more or less. Yeah. So uh, that's Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Again, kind of a goofy one to have here in the top 10, but just in terms of where my heart is, in terms of movies that I tell everyone they have to watch, literally screened it at a theater for my birthday and made like 20 some people watch this movie with me. This one's up there for me. And you were also Zebra Man for Halloween. And I was Zebra Man for Halloween. Zebra Man is uh, perhaps the most iconic individual who appears wearing this outrageous zebra outfit. Um, and I dressed as him for Halloween. I mean, I just got a zebra shirt, but, you know, that was enough. Yeah, the spirit is 75% of it. But, man, you're going to give me a hard time for is Dr. Horrible a movie and then immediately pick heavy metal parking lot i considered putting 72778 <laughs> somewhere on here the man rhapsodizing as you say about a specific garfield strip but uh not quite but i do think about that one all the time and i certainly quote it all the time as well yeah this is probably my pick that's most far afield from what you would consider a film but I, the heart wants what it wants brian yeah Truths belonging love and radically radiant light. What is that from? 72778. Come on. Okay. <laughs> Number 10 for me, I have Troll 2. This one has steered my life in significant ways. I first watched it in 2006 and I made it a crusade to kind of go around Johnny Appleseed style and sprinkle this movie into people's lives. And it's still bearing fruit to this day, Dan. I mean, for instance, your brother has an ongoing Facebook thread where he and his friends just recommend every couple weeks Troll 2 to each other. And it's been going on for 10 plus years. Yeah, we did a special screening on the 10 year anniversary of it. And then we watched a movie not too long ago where you got really excited that someone from the Troll 2 cast was made an appearance. I think it was Halloween Town or one of the Halloween Towns, right? Yeah, he played the cashier and returned to Halloween Town. That was my Facebook friend, Darren Ewing, a.k.a. Troll 2's Arnold, the guy who in the viral clip says, Oh my God! So, yeah, I mean, early on I edited like a tribute video to Troll 2 and uh, the guy who plays Joshua, the child star, he commented on it and Credence commented on it. And so these people are out there. They're hungry. Uh, and it was like my, my first step into the larger movie world. Uh, I met the dad at a screening. So I, I've met some of the, the Troll 2 community, Dan. That's awesome. Very cool. 
I think in some ways our our number tens kind of parallel each other because they're both kind of trashy movies. I don't know if that's the right word that like have really defined our vision of cinema and life in different ways and are like things that we latch on and kind of force onto other people to the extent that we are able to. And uh, I definitely watched this at your recommendation. And obviously I got you to watch Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Right. And I realized that in all of that loving tribute, I said nothing about what actually happens in the film, but it's about goblins eating people, but they got to turn them into plants first. So if that piques your interest, check it out. All right. My number nine. I have a film from 1946, and that is It's a Wonderful Life by Frank Capra. This is a movie that just reduces me to bawling tears every single time I watch it. I sometimes think about like, what's the key to making me cry? And it, it's definitely like depictions of deep and long lasting sentimental love. And especially when people kind of realize the emotional impact of that, which is the ending of this movie to a T it's most famous for the sort of time turning counter reality where he never existed, which is something of a staple in storytelling. Like you can say the it's a wonderful life story and people know what you're talking about. The Shrek four, if you will, (laughs) I've actually never seen Shrek four. But anyways, it's interesting because that premise is actually a smaller part of the story than its reputation. It's only like a half hour. It's like the last half hour, but it, it probably is the best part. It's certainly the most interesting part. Though everything that leads up to that is still really great too. It's just this all-American tale of this one great guy, a really terrific performance by Jimmy Stewart, resisting the soul-sucking corporate machinery to serve his town and his family. And the ending just destroys me, just slays me every time. All best all blank sighing ever. Man, I'm excited to watch it again this holiday season. Uh, I, I love this one. It is creeping up my chart just because of how much it makes me feel when I watch it, which is like the fact that it can sustainably do that is very impressive. So it's a wonderful life. I think there has been at least one episode where we've talked a little bit about It's a Wonderful Life before. I think it would be interesting to bring it to the pot. I mean, you know what rating I would give it, but just to kind of dissect all the interesting story stuff that goes on. There's a lot that happens here that is kind of noteworthy, I think, that we kind of forget because of that final premise. Yeah, I have a lot to say about it. And, I mean, the main thing was it took me a long time to finally see it, and when I did, I was surprised that that act of the story doesn't take very long because really, you know, two-thirds or three-quarters of it is about setting up the way that his life has gone, and then you just like rapidly in succession you see well if you weren't around then this 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 and he's like oh dang i think though that's a good point because uh what really makes the ending work is that it's like a meticulously constructed setup to first of all kind of unwind all of that with the the flashback the pseudo flashback to a a life where he did never exist and then it kind of all comes storming back and you really appreciate everything that led him there. So, yeah, that's my number nine. Okay, my number nine. Now, this 
is a big shakeup if you have familiarity with my 2013 list because it's the only new thing that has cracked the top 10. The only thing that wasn't on that list at all that's here in my top 10. And it's The Return of the Living Dead from 1985. It's a horror comedy. Probably the best horror comedy I can think of and that it hits both of those marks really, really well. It's scary and gross, but it's also hilarious because of the way that it builds from beginning to end. And I just think it gets better every time I watch because it has that sense of escalation. Nothing ever gets better once the movie starts. It's They, cr they crack open a tank full of zombie gas and everything past that point is just worse than the moment before. It's got, it's got like a great mix of practical effects and it, yeah, just the, the idea that these zombies can't be destroyed in the way that you might think because you can't destroy their head or cut off their head or any of that because any point, any part of their body that you separate from the trunk is just going to come after you of its own accord and continue making problems. Like, down to the atomic level. It's a mess. Top 10, wow. Uh, we talked about this one pretty early in the pod's history. I, I really got to see it again. It's, it was a lot of fun when we watched it. Yeah. A huge part of why it's here is, is just the effectiveness of the structure. The constant escalation, yeah. All right, at number eight, maybe a surprise. I don't pitch it as hard as often as I do some others. This is Mulholland Drive from 2001. It's really grown on me. Uh, my friend, Nate, who uh, joined us for the apartment episode back a little bit earlier in the show's run. One time, this was like, man, right around 2017, I think. I was like, hey, man, I got a free night. I want to watch a movie. You pick the movie. And so I went over to his place we sat down. He's like, all right, this has become one of my favorite movies and I'm just going to show it to you. And and he turned it on and man, it really surprised me. Uh, David Lynch, maybe peak David Lynch. I haven't actually seen all of David Lynch's films. I've probably seen less than half, to be honest. But as far as what I've seen and just like the balance of all of the crazy things he can do about making you feel sort of insane, but like hitting these really emotional textures this just perfects it. It's a it's a kind of weird story about an actress who's played by Naomi Watts, and she helps this other woman who gets in a car accident and has amnesia. And it spirals deeper and deeper into sort of a kind of insanity, but really has like this gripping tenor about it that I can't quite describe easily that just makes you think about it and like draws you in. And it's very, very dreamlike and often nightmarish. Like there's some really scary and bizarre scenes here, some killer jump scares that you're, they're so scary because you're not really expecting them. The editing is masterful. And then it's got this conclusion to it. I really don't want to spoil it, but there's a lot of different ways to interpret it. And I like how elliptical the ending is. So, um, man, every time I watch this one, it's three times now, it skyrockets up my all-time ranking. And it has really stuck with me. It's it's a hell of an eight for me. So that's Mulholland Drive. I also wrote a pretty big review of it fairly recently on thegoodsreviews.com. You haven't seen this one. Is that right, Brian? That's right. There's a lot of David Lynch I still need to see. 
this one, I mean, along with a lot of David Lynch, but I feel this one specifically comes up in a lot of critics lists. So definitely got to check this one off. How does it compare to something like Twin Peaks? Um, this one is more dreamlike and weird and just kind of like intense from start to finish. Twin Peaks mostly doesn't go quite so far down the rabbit hole as this one. But a lot of what Twin Peaks does in terms of these kind of like two sides of reality where there's a light side and there's a dark side and reconciling those two different things is very true in Mulholland Drive as well. Cool. Well, at number eight, I have Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, a Disney film from 1971. It's kind of Mary Poppins B-side it's like a project that they were working on in case they never got the rights to Mary Poppins. And then they kind of dragged it back off the back burner after Walt Disney died. And the company was, you know, at the point where they were using up old ideas. But it's got music from the Sherman Brothers. And the real reason that it's here for me is the finale scene. I talked about it in our musical moments consideration. But it's this huge battle between this army of disembodied armor against Nazi invaders. So it's, yeah, it's it's all these knights, but nobody inside the suits of armor, just ghostly armor marching along, getting riddled with machine gun bullets, but continuing ever onward until the Nazis have to break and run. And it's just really well done. Great physical special effects. You wonder how it was all put together. I mean, some of it is green screen stuff. Some of it is puppets of various kinds. Uh, but it's really haunting. Uh, it's added to by this spooky score. It's like nonsense magic word chanting that's powering the suits. One of my all-time favorite scenes in cinema. That's awesome, yeah. Another one I haven't seen. I'm batting a pretty low average on your top 25, I think. But this has been one you talked about, and I definitely want to see. I could show it to my five-year-old, right? It's like a family film. Yeah. I watched this one from really young. Okay, cool. At number seven, I have another film that is one of my go-to recommended classic films, black and white films, like The Third Man. Just one that I, I would recommend to pretty much everyone. And that is Casablanca from 1942. It's just so perfect, a Hollywood construction, just the Hollywood studio system, full tilt with this, this great story, really romantic, but also like jaded. And because it's about like the one who got away, it's about uh, trying to heal a broken heart. Obviously, a million things have been written about Casablanca, and I think they're all true, at least the positive ones. There's electric chemistry in the leads between Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. Bogey plays a bar owner that's this haven of Nazi resistance during the war in Morocco, and how he comes to be basically the central figure in an effort to basically elevate this allied kind of icon. And so at its core, it's also just very like gripping in terms of anti-Nazi pro freedom energy. Um, but really it all just comes down to the filmmaking, the chemistry, just a, gri a gripping story told so perfectly. 
Absolutely love Casablanca. Well, Dan, there's a lot of your top 25 that I haven't seen either. And probably my biggest hole in movie knowledge, I've never seen Casablanca. I got to fix that. I even have the DVD. I've just never put it in. I got to watch it. For my birthday, I got the three disc 70th anniversary version, which has like all sorts of supplemental stuff and like booklets and, and art and stuff with it. So I'll crack that open someday. Wow. It's a little crazy to me that it's from 1942. So like it's a World War II movie that was made somewhat early in World War II. Yeah, I know. It is kind of crazy. And like they didn't know how the war was going to end when they made this. Like it was very possible that it, it could end in Hitler domination, which adds like a, a sense of tension to it. It's like the filmmakers are trying to figure this out, too. They're not just doing the Inglorious Bastards thing and, and looking back on it. It was it was real to them. Great point. At number seven, I have Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure from 1989. This is a goofball slacker comedy, but it shows you things you might never expect to see, like Abraham Lincoln chewing bubblegum to fix a broken antenna in the Stone Age. So they're failing history. It's um, Alex Winter and breakout star Keanu Reeves who are traveling through time in a phone booth definitely ripped that from doctor who but anyway they're failing history and so they're given this chance to set their lives right because 700 years in the future civilization is based on the tenets of their music that they make because they are wannabe rock musicians apparently at some point they figure out how to be good rock musicians and their music shapes the future but it hasn't happened yet but so it can happen future residents have come to their aid and given them this time travel power and they go back in time and they consult with a bunch of historical figures to put together a winning report it's wonky it's super memorable and the script is better than you might imagine there's like a lot of funny, thoughtful stuff in it. There's even a wordless gag where... So they take all the figures to the mall. They pick up a bunch of historical figures. They take them to the mall in the 80s. Uh, because what they have to write about in their report is what would such and such an historical figure think of today's society. And at the mall, Freud buys a corn dog. <laughs> I never thought about that. That's pretty funny. Yeah, I love this one too. It didn't obviously quite crack my top 100, but I think it's an extremely funny and charming movie. Do you have a favorite historical figure that they depict? Like the one you get excited when they're on screen? I like the speech that Lincoln makes at the end. I think they're all featured well in the final report. They give the most business over the course of the movie to Billy the Kid. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to pick Lincoln. What about you? Okay. For me, it's Socrates. He always makes me laugh so hard. His his introduction, <laughs> dust, wind, dude. And then Socrates gets really excited, never fails to put like a big smile on my face. I love that so much. <laughs> and they're always calling him Socrates. Socrates, of course. How dare I say Socrates? Socrates. Good pick. So, Brian, 
just to kind of refresh you, all of these movies I've seen since we started the podcast. And so this ranking is pretty highly reflective of my current opinion of films, which is to say that they all hold up and are all like ones that if I came in with fresh eyes, well, I, I don't know if I could say that all of these would be ranked in this order, but certainly like I still love them and I love them for watching them today as much as when I watched them when I was a kid, maybe with one exception. And that exception is my number six, my all time sentimental pick comes up all the time on the pod. Not that one that comes up all the time on the pod, the other one that comes up all the time on the pod. And that is a goofy movie from 1995. This movie was my childhood, my all time sentimental pick first theater experience. I recall going to the theater, just cackling so hard, so funny. My favorite moment was when the car blew up at the end and Goofy was like giving a, a gives a cheeky smile and wave. And then the car blows up and he flies through the porch roof. So much funny stuff in it. It shows parental tension with like a, an adolescent and also like crushes and romance for the first time, kind of like defining adolescent life that really resonated with me when I watched it. Like cause those things were just starting to become a thing in my life. You know, I was seven when it came out and I like rewatched it for years and years after that. And it continued to kind of grow with me. The premise is that Goofy is forcing his teenage son, Max, to go on a vacation that Max uses as a way to also try and force himself to a big concert for a fictional rock musician named Powerline in L.A. But I think what enduringly I love about it is, first of all, the music. This soundtrack was my holy grail for, for years and years. Like, it was out of print, so you could buy it online for like 40 or $50, but I didn't have that much money, pocket money to spend at least when I was a kid. And so I would literally watch the movie just to listen to the music and then rewind and watch it again just to listen to the music again. Um, and I just think the the way that it depicts the relationship between Max and Goofy really resonant and really honest. And it's just a really core and fascinating relationship that like adds a lot of dramatic tension and character development and gives you kind of both sides of their perspective. Great voice acting makes me laugh a lot. It's it's just my sentimental pick. That's, that's what it is. That's number six, a goofy movie. Now, this one I know you've seen, Brian. Yep. I love a goofy movie. It is quite well done. It was put out by the Disney Toon Studios, which was a studio that existed just to make movies out of the Disney afternoon TV shows. So it was like a second tier animation studio, but they did a really good job with it. Definitely, it's touching and funny. Good music. Didn't crack into my list, but I definitely have fond memories of that one too. At number six, I have Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, also from 1989, like my last pick. So this one wraps up the original trilogy. Really, the Indiana Jones movies that matter. Forget about four. Forget about whatever five is going to be. They've just started releasing promotional pictures. But it wraps things up well. I mean, it's got last in the name. And this is the one where they're after the Holy Grail. It's got Sean Connery as the dad. Actually, only 12 years older than Harrison Ford. 
but you know it kind of plays on the idea that James Bond was the big action hero but now it's Indiana Jones and I really love the score anything that's got John Williams doing the score it's going to elevate it and like the new light motifs introduced in this one just they're really touching and I'm going to talk about it a little more in a second here but like I come back to these movies when I want to remember why I love movies so much it's like just things about it the the way that they put together the effects like when the dude rapidly ages at the end and it just feels mythic it feels like this really is a story that's capping off after a thousand years of something being lost in the desert it's a great one for sure it didn't quite crack my top 100 i think i'm maybe slightly lower on it just because when i watched all three of them in slight succession the third one more so than the second one felt like it was kind of retreading the first one to some extent but the wrench in the gears is sean connery and the chemistry between connery and harrison ford who don't look anything alike and speak totally different accents, but are just so good as a father and a son. It's so good. No explanation for why Connery's got like his Scottish accent the whole time. Yeah. Their builds are different and stuff. I don't care. I love it. They're, they're so funny together. All right. So now we're, we're at the top five. We're getting there. So my number five is my first ever favorite movie. Whenever I made a list up, through 2009 i had this one at number one and that is rudy from 1993 uh, it's a movie i have so many connections to possibly overrated a, a little bit because of that and because i've loved it for so long but i really think it's great i, I really do i think it's maybe the most inspiring film that i've ever seen it's almost like religious in its depiction of this guy named rudy and his devotion to like a higher calling and in this case, his higher calling is he wants to play football for Notre Dame, the University of Notre Dame. And he's this little dinky 20-something-year-old who graduated college a few years ago and works at a factory now or a steel mill or I forget what it is. And how is he going to possibly, when there's like elite high school seniors who are like huge 250-pound linebackers, how is he possibly ever going to make one of the best college football teams in the country and just tracing that. And it all comes back to his willingness to devote his life for it. It's almost like a religious text to be in that regard. It's just, and then whenever he like makes a step in the progress, it's so gratifying and so inspiring. And then the ending, it's just one of my favorite movie endings too. this incredible Jerry Goldsmith score. So sentimental and, and heart tugging. They shoot Rudy from like, a low angle so it looks like he's kind of a heavenly figure and stuff and then it's it's shot in the midwest in the autumn it's so beautiful it's it's uh just a lovely film it's so colorful so yeah one of the most important movies to me uh, and that's rudy from 1993 this is one i watched actually at your recommendation back when you wrote your blog post about it i do like it it's got the theme that has endlessly been used in other trailers. So for years, I was confused what movie it was actually from. But it's like, ba 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 ba. Mm hmm. No. Generic inspirational score. 
I should mention Sean Astin plays Rudy, and it's a great spunky performance by him. Yes, indeed. Number five for me is Fight Club from David Fincher. Now, your mileage might vary with this one, but I think the script is great. So much memorable dialogue. It's like very edgy, but I don't think it's like one dimensional. Maybe there's a lot of people who like the movie because they idolize Tyler Durden, but I think this goes out of its way to dissect and paint Tyler Durden's appeal in a negative light. Like, Edward Norton doesn't come out of this very well, all things considered. Well, maybe in the end he does, but he goes through some rough stuff on the way. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be him. Yeah, uh, but this is a story where Edward Norton meets... he. Well, he's a guy who travels constantly on business trips because he's like a risk analyst for a car company. And so as part of that, he's got to like study all these grisly car crashes and stuff. And so he just starts to like dissociate. He doesn't feel connected to other people. And then he meets up with this compelling figure played by Brad Pitt, who together they hit on this radical therapy where instead of doing like talking in a circle they're just going to meet up once a week and have fist fights out in the parking lot. And that's going to be how they work out all their tension and move forward with life is fighting. And what's quirky and like really engaging about it is you think, you know, this could actually work. Maybe this is a good idea. And then it goes gradually into darker and darker places, and you wonder how you were able to be led down this primrose path. I really got to watch this one again. I def I saw it in college, and I liked it, although I waffled just a little bit on how much I bought into it. Because you're right, it, it presents like a very stringent and bleak life view. And like makes you kind of live there. Now, I agree with you. I think it's being done in the name of satire more so than like worship. But it's kind of a hard thing to spend two hours with. But I got to watch it again because it's been a while since I've seen it. All right. So Fight Club is arguably the most film bro movie. One of the most film bro movies. If you ever hear people talk about film bros, the types of movies they like are Fight Club, Joker, um, Boondock Saints. Uh, Clockwork Orange. And also my number four, which is The Shawshank Redemption from 1994. It may be a basic film bro pick, but it is still legitimately one of my favorites. I just love this movie so much. You know, it's it has the baggage of being number one on the IMDb top 250 movies list. But for me, it, I don't know if it deserves to be number one, but it deserves to be up there. I just think it's such a good story. So it tells the story of Andy Dufresne, uh, who is a man imprisoned for murder in a prison that is called Shawshank. And basically how he refuses to let go of the spark of hope that's at the core of his soul. It's a tremendously made movie. Great sense of place, lovely cinematography. And the ending, it just is so stirring, so inspiring and and just like an ascent to redemption as is in the title for, for Andy Dufresne. And it just gets me every single time. 
it grips me the whole way. And I think it's a terrifically made film. It's it's a great one. The Shawshank Redemption, 1994. It's a hard movie to talk about because ever since I've loved movies, this was like, of course, I was like, oh, well, if I love movies, I got to go find lists of what are the best movies. And then this one appears there, including IMDb near the top. And I put it on. And I'm like, oh, I guess I do love movies. I love this one so much. And it's just been with me ever since. Nice. I like Shawshank Redemption quite a bit. I wonder how I would have experienced it if I didn't know the ending the first time I watched it. But I did. I knew how it was going to end. I think if I didn't, this could very well be in my top favorites. I think it's really well done. And it's one that I come back to pretty often. It's pretty interesting. Like Favorite endings is kind of a recurring theme for much of my top 25. Because this definitely has one of my favorite endings. And yeah, I didn't know what was going to happen the first time I watched it. And I think that is why it moved me so profoundly. At number four, I've got Back to the Future. Dan just talked about it. Great time travel movie. Probably the best time travel movie. But I like all the different genres that go into it. It's uh, science fiction, comedy, romance. You know, very distinct characters a distinct sense of place and just an amazingly tight script like when you've watched this as many times as i have you appreciate all the things that are in the opening shot which is a camera tracking across a big wall of clocks but there's all these subtle little breadcrumbs of what's going to happen in the movie because like there's a clock that has harold lloyd from the old silent movie safety last hanging off the hands of the clock and then, like, under the bed in the corner, there's a box that has radiation warnings on it. And, you know, there's, like, a, a dog food bowl that's filled to, to overflowing. And so as this tracking shot is going on, you're starting to come up with questions about what's really going on here. And just all throughout the movie, there's, there's tight things like that. Things that are setups and things that are payoffs. You know, it's examining your relationship with your parents... Would you be friends with your parents when you were their age or when they were your age? And it's just funny and sweeping. And one I come back to, it was built on in the sequels. Like if you thought of all three Back to the Futures as one movie, that would probably be number three for me. Like it would only raise this, but I do think the first one's the best. Yeah, I... I mean, as I already talked about, I, I love this. I think you're right. The first one says that sets the template so well. And it's just crafted with such polish, for sure. I need to go watch that first shot again, because I don't know how much I've ever thought about that. I need to like look at that and think a little bit about Easter eggs and stuff in there and, and hints and themes in there. And so now we hit, for me, the the top tier. The top three for me, you know, each of the three, when I last watched them, when the movie ended, I pretty unequivocally said, all right, that's actually got to be my number one. I, I just forgot how much I love that movie, even though I already knew it was one of my favorites. But then now I've done that with all three. So how do I rank the three? Well, I'm going to go with the order that I've kind of stuck with for a while on these three. We'll see if I continue to have them in this exact order as time goes by. But... At number three, I have 
my favorite Pixar movie, Toy Story 3 from 2010. And this is the absolute peak powers of Pixar for my money. Just everything that they're capable of doing, doing it so well. It's really funny. It's a great adventure. It's beautiful animation. But most importantly, it is a brave and heartbreaking piece of filmmaking that we kind of get to see, at least for you know millennials, our childhood ending on screen in a very cinematic way. And it just touches me to my, my core every time I watch it. The premise is that Andy's toys, now something like uh, 10 years later, are coping with the fact that Andy is going to college. And what are they going to do when Andy goes to college? Well, he's planning to bring Woody, his longtime favorite toy, but what about the rest of them? And it just kind of builds from there. And I think it's perfect from start to finish. It kind of has a reputation for peaking at the ending. And to be sure, you know, that thing that I've said about so many of these, it is one of my favorite endings. In fact, now that I think about it, this one might be at the top. I don't know. But anyways, I think it's pretty perfect from all three acts, too. I think it does some really clever stuff in terms of foreshadowing and then misdirecting us a little bit. Like it makes you think the story is going certain ways and then it goes other ways. And it does what all the Toy Stories have done, which is have some pop culture parody and reference and genre pastiche in it, but brings it in a new direction where we have like a, a heist movie, a prison escape movie, and then a disaster movie when the, the toddlers come in are destroying the toys at the daycare center. And it's it's just really clever. And then it gets to that last half hour, which is basically like three different endings for the story. It's just so good. And each kind of hit a different tone and give us closure on the story in some way. We have the apocalypse, we have the rebirth, and then we have the dance party. And every time I watch it, something about that makes me cry and, and tugs my heart in some ways. And honestly, it makes me feel huge feelings for the life that I've been able to live and that I get to continue to get to live and just all the people and experiences that have helped me get there and what a blessing it is. I don't know why this movie particularly makes me feel that, but it really does. So that's Toy Story 3. I have it at number three. But like I said, any of these three could have been my number one. This one made me too sad. <laughs> I did go see it a couple times in the movie theater when it came out in 2010. Uh, one of the times I saw it in 3D, obviously, had to do it. I really liked the short it was paired with, which I think is the best Pixar has used 3D. It was in, uh, it was called Day and Night. And it's got characters who are like holes. They're windows into worlds. And in one, it's a world at nighttime. And in one, it's a world at daytime. But they're walking around, and in 3D, it's amazing. Because really, they're like holes in the screen, and you're peeking through into their little dimension. Now, Brian, I think for, I think it was Christmas, I got you the Toy Stories in 3D for your 3D Blu-ray player. Does it have the short on it, do you know? Oh, man. You know what? I haven't opened that yet. But now I need to. That was a great gift. I do really appreciate it so i'm sorry i haven't watched it yet no that's okay and but i i'm gonna dig it out i'm gonna open that up because i'm glad you reminded me i actually forgot that was there on the shelf i'm gonna find that out if it does have it i i definitely uh would be interested in seeing that if it has it i saw it i think 
four or five times in theaters, but I'm racking my brain for whether or not I ever saw it in 3D, which was, you know, really hot in 2010. Um, I kind of didn't like it. I get a little bit dizzy when I watch 3D stuff, but um, I kind of wish I had seen it because everybody raved about the 3D for the day and night short at the beginning. Yeah, good point. You should come over and watch at least that much. So it's I'll bet it's on there. It's got to be. My number three, you talked about it earlier on in your list. It's The Prestige by Christopher Nolan. This is one that my friend told me, you got to see this. He popped it in. And as soon as it was over, I immediately wanted to watch it again because it's a puzzle movie. It's all the pieces are out of order and it's little bits of information that you get piecemeal and you have to form the full picture on your own as it unfolds. And it's another one that's all about rivalry about do you sacrifice the good things that you have in your life to, just to destroy this guy that you're jealous of? It's set against the Victorian England backdrop, which is always kind of cool. Everybody's got top hats. And our two leads are Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. Batman and Wolverine, but here they are as rival Victorian magicians. Actually, it's not England, sorry. It is the Victorian period, but they're both in America. And if you want to talk about great endings, this one's got a great ending for sure. Oh, yeah. That's when it, it finally all clicks together into place. People use the term puzzle box narrative. At least when I read that, I typically see it as like a pejorative. But to me, this is like the best case scenario for a puzzle box narrative. Because once all the pieces fall into place, you're like, oh, my God, it was there the whole time. Yeah. And you want to go see it again. Easy for a nonlinear movie to just be confusing and inordinately complex like it didn't need to be done this way but here i think in prestige it works one movie that throws me a little in that regard is pulp fiction mm. like i i could enjoy pulp fiction i think just as much if not more if it were in order but interesting different strokes for different folks that actually makes me want to see an edit of it i feel like you would lose some of the power of having it be kind of an anthology with like a bunch of self-contained stories but it would be a very interesting exercise to like put that movie in chronological order and just see what it would, how it would play out. I wonder if there's a fan edit of that. I bet there is somewhere. All right. So my number two, it's the ultimate hangout film. It's the ultimate teen comedy. It's one of the ultimate soundtracks. It's the ultimate summer movie, the ultimate Richard Linklater movie that is dazed and confused from 1993, man. The music in this gives the film so much texture. I'm just always blown away how much the music makes each scene feel like a miniature masterpiece, even though not really much happens. When I say it's the ultimate hangout film, there's really not that much of a plot to it. It's like it follows a group of like 25 characters on the last day of school and then the party after the last day of school. But there's just so much richness and comedy and the cross section of their personalities, the way they talk and interact it manages to feel naturalistic, but also so quotable. Like you could take any snippet of conversation and just dissect how well written it is and how funny it is. And that's what makes it such a great rewatch is you have all these characters saying all these crazy things on doing these crazy things, interacting in different ways. And you can kind of follow a different thing each time and a different thread and see the ways that characters kind of change in tiny little ways across the night 
and reveal something about them that you may not have understood and handle different things in different ways. It is, of course, a vibes heavy film, but I think the thing that I love most about it beyond all, it's just terrific filmmaking and the way that everything pieces together is just how much I want to hop into it. Something about the way Linklater makes it. You just want to be in this experience in this party. I, I wish I could have gone there. If I went now, I would be like Matthew McConaughey, the, the creepy older guy hanging out with the teens. But it's simultaneously like a super nostalgic film. But it's also interesting because it's got a lot of edge to it. It's not just warm nostalgia. It, it remembers that there's a lot of indignities and cruelties in being adolescent and the way that adolescents interact with each other. There's a lot of hazing. There is some weirdos in there. And I think the fact that it has that edge also keeps it from being too syrupy sweet. It also just has the teens kind of wondering about what comes next and just a little bit bored without being too cynical or jaded. So it just walks a fine line in everything that it does. And I just love it so much. It's one of my favorite movies and it just makes me so happy when I watch it because I'm smiling, even though not everything that happens in it is nice just because it creates this really unique texture that that's just a blend of all these themes and tones into this very distinct, but also kind of universal portrait of, of teens hanging out. That's Days and Confused, 1993, my number two. Well, I'm glad, glad that you got that much out of it. Uh, you showed me this one. You projected it on a bed sheet out in the yard at your birthday party. And when we did our episode about Amazing World of Ghosts, you said something along the lines of, when it started off, I thought, okay, this is the opening. Then it got about 15 minutes in and I realized, no, this is the movie. <laughs> it's just, you're, I, I need to rewatch it. Uh, maybe I'll get something more out of it. But it, it really is a lot of hanging out. So if that's what you're after, that's what it's going to deliver. Yeah. And, and, you know, different strikes for different folks. Exactly. Exactly. You say you like tight scripts. That's something you opened our last episode with. And if you're talking about narrative, this does not have that kind of script. Right, right. My number two, we've talked about it a bit already. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Just a quintessential adventure movie. Really trailblazing in that regard. It harkens back to movies of the 40s that Lucas and Spielberg loved as kids but with the cutting edge 80s effect, it just amped it up, put it into a class of its own to a degree that's maybe not been equaled since. I love things like the iconic map transition, just the, the little red line tracing the plane as it goes from place to place. And the John Williams score, man, is just unforgettable. It's world-defining almost to the level of Star Wars. Not quite there, but it's it's really good. And each movie in the trilogy has, like, new little musical elements in the mix, and they're all good. Like Parade of the Slave Children from Temple of Doom, um, Sherzo for Motorcycle from Last Crusade. All these bits that you wouldn't even think that you remember, but as soon as you put them on, you're like, oh, yeah, that's from that scene. Like, um, oh, what is it? There's one, the, the, the tune that plays when the tank plays. It might be called Belly of the Steel Beast. But, like, when the tank comes out in Last Crusade. 
just good trilogy as a whole. It, it didn't need more installments. But again, this is one that I pop in when I want to remember why I love movies. The VHS set that I got in like the early 2000s has got this trailer that plays and it says, if adventure has a name, it must be Indiana Jones. And it's a super cut of stuff from all the three movies. And it's a very well-made trailer. It got, oh, me, nice. it got me hyped. I would have bought the box set, but of course I was already watching the box set. So why even put <laughs> that advertisement on it? But good question. Maybe so they could play it at stores and they'd be like, oh, just go buy this thing that's right here. I don't know. I think that's probably it. I don't know why I have it as low as number 18. It could easily be higher. You're right. It's that it is that good. It's it's phenomenal. Great pick. Just a, a, a brilliantly made film. I've encountered a couple people who don't even have it as the best Indiana Jones, which I don't even understand. Like it's the prototype and it does everything so perfectly. Mm-hmm. But now we're at number one all time. So there's kind of a recurring bit on the goods where somehow I always manage to craft a conversation so that I have a chance to talk about this movie. And in some ways, you could almost say that, like me having this at number one is the ultimate punchline, just because over and over I've managed to get us to talk about it. And now here after a two part, almost four hour conversation, here we are talking about the 1996 film directed by Tom Hanks, that thing you do. The boom, pop, pop, boom, pop, boom, boom is how the, the song opens. I mean, honestly, you probably knew this was coming from the start, but I love this movie so much. It is just everything about it makes you smile. It, doesn't have like the richest or harshest conflict. It's more content to just kind of let things unfold in a kind of gentle way. But it's a story about the rise of this band called the wonders in Erie, Pennsylvania. And they're just these guys who perform at a college talent show. And they have this song called that thing you do. That was, was written in real life by Adam Schlesinger, who is my favorite songwriter of all time movies or otherwise. And this is my favorite song ever made for a movie. So catchy and just this perfect 60s era pop rock song and just kind of following them as that song takes off. What's so remarkable about it is that it could have been easy to be kind of cynical or detached from like any component of it. But Hanks must have just been polishing this and adding touches for years and years and years into his script and his vision of what this movie would look like, because every single phase of the journey is filled with life and details and characters who just embrace this place that they're in. And, and the movie isn't really derogatory towards it. It's more like enthusiastic about every component of it. And um, my big recommendation is go in watching the theatrical cut, which is a little harder to find at least on in some places, if you like buy it on Amazon, I think it might be the the shorter cut. There's an extended director's cut that's kind of like a feast for fans of all this bonus scenes that flesh out the world even more. But I think it's so well edited in the theatrical cut of just being super zippy 
and it's almost two hours, but it really feels like an 85 minute movie. It just moves so quickly and, and it always has something fun going on. And yeah, I love it. That thing you do great musical world, everything in all the music in it is invented. It's like, there's not the Supremes. There's a band that sounds like the Supremes and plays Supremes esque music, but it's not actually the Supremes. They've just written new stuff for that. And I don't know. It it's just my comfort movie and the one that I feel most personally affectionate towards out of all movies in the world. I, is it better than some of the other ones? I don't know. I mean, I think it is because it does the things that I love. But regardless, it's the one that I just have the, the biggest fondness for. My favorite movie, That Thing You Do, 1996. The ultimate Tom Hanks movie, too, because he both directed it and starred in it. Yeah, I was wondering, did the fact that you have such a passion for this movie influence your decision to go as deep as you did with the Hanks filmography? Well, certainly it was a component of it. I mean, I love a lot of Tom Hanks movies. I had four, I think, Tom Hanks movies in my top 25. Well, for my number one, I have the same movie that was up there on the 2013 list. It's UHF starring Weird Al Yankovic. To date, I believe his sole starring vehicle. It was when his star was on the rise. I mean, he's a he's a big known name, but you wouldn't pick him for a movie star. And, you know, I, I've said a couple times that I'm in praise of tight scripts. This one isn't that at all. Definitely not tight. It's all over the place. There's like random music videos thrown into the mix, which if there were one thing I would change, it would be to drop the music video because that's a little bit too much of a distraction. But all the like TV parodies that show up, I think are pretty funny. Uh, and the story is kind of that he's a Walter Mitty type character, like drifting aimlessly in his day to day life. But he's always he's always disappearing into daydreams and fantasies and imagining himself in other stories. And so they use this as a, and so they use this as an excuse for, to put him in like an Indiana Jones parody scene and a Rocky parody scene. But he ends up early on inheriting a TV studio deed from his uncle. And so now he's in charge of this UHF station, which was, Kind of like public access, kind of a precursor to cable. It was like buy a special antenna that you screw into the back of your TV and it gets you additional channels beyond the networks. And he uses it to just come up with all these weird ideas for TV shows. And So it's stuff like Wheel of Fish and the Volcano Worshippers Hour. And like you see at one point the studio scheduling board and it's almost like in cabin in the woods, they got the big board with all the monsters on it. It's like, I wonder what these shows would be because you only see maybe half a dozen of them, but there's like 20 on the board and he brings all his friends aboard to make shows on the channel. And he ends up becoming the television darling of the nation because he makes weird TV. And it's wish fulfillment for sure, but I've always connected with it. It was a big factor in me deciding to make a public access TV show. And I like it. We've said a few times different strokes for different folks. It might not be your cup of tea, but for me, it lands here at number one. Huzzah. We did it, Dan. I, uh, I seen UHF once when I was in college 
and I, I absolutely need to see it again. Uh, it's been on my to watch list for a while. We made it through 100, Brian, and there's a lot that you talked about that I just desperately want to see that I haven't gotten around to watching. There's so many good movies out there, but I'm kind of torn because on the one hand, I do want to go see all these movies. On the other hand, would they be better as picks, you know? I mean, maybe it's not very interesting to talk about our favorite movies over and over, but I don't know if there's any in particular you're thinking about bringing to the pod. Let, let me know off off screen, off camera. Right. Off, well, off maybe mic. for episode 200, we'll do updates. Yeah. Get, let people breathe for another two years. For sure, though, a few that you brought up, I'm kicking myself for not including. Things like The Godfather. Maybe La La Land. But we gotta keep all these things and ponder them in our hearts, Dan. And maybe come back at it another day. But I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk about a bunch of my favorites and hear you talk about yours. I hope it's been entertaining, listeners. Let us know about your favorite movies. Yeah, and I'll make letterbox lists of our our 100 so I can send those around and we can let people click on them and scroll through the titles, you know. So, but this has been really fun. And seconding Brian, join us on our Discord, which you can find at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. Tell us your favorite movies. Tell us what we should watch that we haven't watched yet, what we might have missed or, or where we overlap. Would love to hear it. And Brian, we this is three weeks in a row now where we've kind of done some retrospecting, some reflection, but we're going to be back on our regularly scheduled cadence of a movie each week starting next week. Is that right? I think that's the plan. And I think it's on you to pick the next movie. <laughs> Am I right about that? That's right. So, Dan, I've got a couple of possibilities. Since... This is the way these things usually shake out, and it's like we record it one day and it comes out a little while after that. Would you be ready for a Christmas pick at this point? Yeah, because by the time we record, it will be after Thanksgiving, which passes my wife's mandated must be past Thanksgiving to get in the Christmas spirit rule. So I'm on board. Oh, good. Well, in the name of considering our legacy... Whatever this thing is that we've built together here on 100 episodes of the podcast, I want to make our next chapter the third installment of our Christmas Carol Marathon, Dan, where we take to task four different versions of the endlessly adapted novella by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. Awesome. All right. One of my highlights of every year. So do you want to read them off now or do we just want to... Share them the start of next week. I want to let people know. Okay. So the gist of what we are going to be talking about this time is that they all incorporate licensed characters in the various roles. So we've got Mickey's Christmas Carol. We've got Bah Humduck, a Looney Tunes Christmas Carol. We have a Flintstones Christmas Carol. And we have... The Barbie Christmas Carol. First female Scrooge, Dan. Wow. The glass ceiling is shattered. Scroogeette. Interesting. I'm excited. I haven't seen any of these ones. Oh, I might have seen the Mickey Christmas Carol. Actually, I did. I watched that either last year or the year before. But that's the only one of the four I've seen. 
Yep. I think also for me, that's the only one. But I have a... Okay. I'm fond of Mickey's Christmas Carol. And I'm looking forward to finding out about the other ones, too. Cool. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us. And another call to action. Come join us and, and share your thoughts. And we're 100 episodes in, and I am excited for the next 100. Brian, listeners, I will catch you next week on The Goods, a film podcast. Join us next time, and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you.